There are a lot of great things that I enjoy on July 4th. However, there is one thing that happens on July 4th that I find quite, I'll be honest, disgusting. I'm not talking about the fireworks. I think nothing says America like blowing up a bunch of Chinese stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about the flag line streets. Uh, that's something that's always very cool to see. What I'm talking about is something that will take place today uh, at noon on Coney Island. It is the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Championship. Uh, and today, Joey Chestnut will do his best to break his record of 75 hot dogs eaten in 10 minutes. Uh, and while there's a part of me that says, there's nothing that says America like cramming down 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes, if you just watch it, you'll know that it's not Joey Chestnut that grosses you out. It's the guy next to him that's trying to keep up with him that grosses you out. Because there will be a time somewhere in the competition where they're focusing in on someone as they're turning green. Uh, and then they turn the camera away from them because you know what just happened on that table. While everybody else is still eating, somebody just lost all their hot dogs and was disqualified from the contest. How'd you like to be sitting next to that guy? Some of you think, well, it's kind of like my brother-in-law. I'm going to see this afternoon. I don't get it. It's disgusting. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that deals with a dream that Peter had that he found equally as disgusting, and it involved pork as well. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and turn to Acts, the 10th chapter. It's a lengthy passage. I don't have all the Scriptures up on the screen because we're going to be jumping over them as we go along. But here's what you need to know. The original church was seven years old or so at this point, we think. Luke didn't think to write down notations of dates in there for us, for all of us Western-minded people. But it was exclusively made up of Jewish people or of Jewish converts, converts to Judaism at this point in time. And if you were going to be a convert to Judaism, not only would you have to follow the ceremonial food laws, which included no pork, no shrimp, anything like that, okay? But also, if you were male, you would have to be circumcised. Now, kids, if you don't know what that is, go home and ask your mom and dad about that. Don't ask me about it, okay? But can you imagine being a grown man and saying, hey, we just baptized you, but there's just one more thing left we have to do. Uh-huh, right? And, and so here we have it. We have this story that is often known as the conversion of Cornelius. But what I want to suggest to you today is that there are four conversions that Luke intends to convey to us throughout this story. And so we're going to roll through starting in verse 1 of Acts the 10th chapter. It says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. Not to be confused with Cornholio, that's somebody completely different. A centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. This is a good fighting man. He is in a good position in his military. He is high ranking as a centurion and he's not in some backwater place. This is a central post. And what we find is that while the Roman army might have been invading several places, God was invading the Roman army to get a hold of Cornelius. Here's what it says. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, which is when Jewish people would often pray, uh, he distinctly saw a vision. He saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, because that's what you do when you see an angel, even if you are a warrior yourself. Staring at him in awe, he said, What is it, Lord? The angel said to him, 
Your prayers and your acts of charity have extended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. I'd like to think that maybe the angel clarified just to make sure he got it. Simon the tanner, leave him behind. Get Simon the apostle. That's the one you want to talk to. Now when the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. You know, one of the things that I read in this passage, I think it's very important to line out, is that God wants people saved more than we do. Okay? God wants people to come to know Him more than we do. We want people to get saved. God would lay down His life so that people are saved. We are devoted to praying for people. God will do anything He can to save people. That's not to insult us, but to talk about the size of God's love for the lost. God wants people saved more than we do. And that means that God is often working ahead of us. You know, oftentimes when we pray for those who don't know Christ yet, we pray, God, would you work in their lives? I would suggest to you by looking at this passage that we should be praying something different. We should say, God, help us see how you are already working in their lives. Because he loves them and he's at work in their lives. Help them to see how he's working. Help, help us to see how he's working so we can be a part of what God is already doing. I think we get to a place where oftentimes we think that we have to be the ones to initiate the work of God in a person's life instead of recognizing the Holy Spirit has gone before us. He is going to be there with us and He is going to be there after as well. Amen? All right. And do you know, we talk about dreams and visions as if there's something weird in the church today. Did you know that out of every four Muslim people who come to Christ... One of the four of them, one out of four, has a vision or a dream where a man in white, who they understand to be Jesus, shows up to them in a dream or a vision. God is still working in amazing ways. I'm not really comfortable with that, to be real honest. That kind of scares me a little bit. But you know what? When it comes time for Ramadan and where they have a time where they focus in on their faith, one of the things that we pray for our missionaries who work with Muslim people is that God would use that time to show up through Jesus Christ in dreams and visions and to call them to the one true Savior. So it says in verse 9, the next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, did you notice that they're already on their way and Peter doesn't have a clue of what's up yet? Peter went up on the roof to pray about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat because it's about noon and some things are universal. But while they were preparing for something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembles a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all of the four-footed animals, not just the kosher ones, but all of them. And also reptiles of the earth, which would have been declared unclean, and the birds up in the sky. And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, which was not the first time that he told the Lord no. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time the voice came to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. And that happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. 
And so what we see here is that Peter, as a devout Jewish person, he was saying, hey, like, I can't eat these things. Hot dogs, I'm not going to the Nathan's contest. That's gross. That's disgusting, right? He's like, like pork chops, like those, those, you know, he hadn't tried them yet. He doesn't know how good they are, does he? But what he's saying here, the message from God is that those foods have been made clean, but it's not the only message from God. The deeper message of God is not just that he's making food clean, but that he is making people clean through Jesus Christ. Those who have been seen as the enemies of God, those who have been seen as the enemies of the Jewish people, God is now stirring in their hearts. The very people who are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, God is now working in that army to bring about a centurion who's going to be a warrior for Christ. Here we see it. In verse 17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision had seen, and still very hungry, might I add, Right away, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, because good men do stop and ask for directions, it's right there in Scripture, you see, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them, and have no doubt, with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. And then Peter went downward to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? So the dialogue continues on here. And what we see happening is that they're welcomed into the house, which again was a ceremonially unclean thing to do. And what we're going to see next is that not only does Peter welcome them into the house, but then Peter goes with them and he goes into Cornelius's house where Cornelius has not only gathered himself, but he has gathered a bunch of friends and family, and there is a packed room full of Gentiles. This is a place that Jewish people should not have gone in their day and time, but Peter believed now that they, God had made them clean. And so Cornelius tells the story about what was going on. They swap stories because that's what good guys do, right? They told stories about their dreams, and they realized, like, wow, like God is working in both people here. And in verse 33, here's what it says. Cornelius says, So I immediately sent for you, and it was good of you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation the person who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Amen to that. And so we see that the first of the four conversions that, 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 that Luke wants for us to come to mind today is actually the conversion of Peter. Peter was already a convert to Christianity. He was already a follower of Jesus Christ. But what needed to happen in his life is he needed to recognize that Jesus Christ died for all people, not just the Jewish people. And when we see that, we see that that blessing of Abraham had to be coming to mind all the way back in Genesis 12 that says that the, that the Jewish people, God's called people, were going to be risen up to be a blessing to all nations through Jesus Christ. And so we see that this happens, that Peter is the first convert in this story, according to me anyway. God had to convert Peter before Peter could convert Cornelius. God had to convince Peter that Cornelius and all of his family were just as worthy of the blood of Jesus as he was. Not because of what they had done, but because of what Christ had done for them. I wonder if any of us need a similar conversion today. 
But we're going to see the next conversion that happens. Peter gets up and preaches as he often does. And then while he's in the middle of the sermon, here's what happens. Verse 42, Peter says, He commanded us to preach the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the other prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And it says, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. Apparently, the Holy Spirit hadn't got the memo that you're supposed to wait for the invitation hymn for these things to happen. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. By the way, Luke, who's writing this, is thought to have been a Gentile as well. For they had heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God, very similar to what happened in Acts 2, uh, that moment where the, the early church started speaking in other languages there and declaring. Now they hear it here from these people who are Gentiles, and they're like, wow. And Peter responded and he said, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they, and they asked him to stay for a few days. So the second conversion that we see here is the conversion of Cornelius and his friends and family. We see that they now, as Gentiles, have come to faith in Christ Jesus, the first truly Gentile converts to Christianity, the first ones to say, yes, we believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. God is expanding His kingdom then. He's expanding it today as well. Where could He possibly go next? But then we see that there's a third conversion that needs to take place. It says in chapter 11 that Peter went home and he got into some trouble with the rest of the apostles. You see, he didn't know, they didn't know what he knew. They hadn't heard the experience that he had had. It says the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that Gentile had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's a heck of a name to call yourself as a party, isn't it? We're the circumcision party. Right there in the Bible, I'm just pointing it out. He, they criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Oh, people start coming to the Lord. Oftentimes, we start getting opposition. And as it goes on, Peter talks to them and tells them the story because he doesn't want to face them in a battle. He knows that they're on the same team, and so he chooses to bring them along with the work of God. So he tells them what happened through his dream, through Cornelius' dream, through that encounter there with Cornelius, and listen to their response in verse 17. Peter says, if then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. So the third thing that we see is the conversion of the church leaders that the church leaders, because of Peter sharing with them, because of their response to the work of God, they recognize that all people are created in the image of God, that Jesus died for all people, and that the message of Jesus is to be shared with everyone. But it took Peter going ahead of them. It took Peter taking the risks. 
It took Peter being obedient to where the Spirit was leading them so that they could then follow. I wonder if God is calling you to go ahead of others. I wonder if he's calling you to go ahead of others with the gospel, to go ahead of others in ways that maybe the, the, the culture is not ready to go, where the church is not ready to go, but is in line with Scripture. This week we had my missionary friends in town, the Maxwells from Kenya, and their son Caden's one request. He's a teenager, so he wanted to go see the busts. While this might have caused some controversy among many teenagers, I knew that the bus he were talking about were the bus up in Canton, Ohio, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's kind of funny, right? All right. As we walked through the room, which has quite a vibe to it, one of the first busts that I saw was that of former Chicago Bear, Gale Sayers. While people will remember him for his running prowess on the field, there's another story, though, that comes to mind for me. Sayers was a black man. He played in the mid-60s to early 70s, right when teams were trying to figure out what racial integration looked like. One of his teammates, who he was fighting for a position against, was a white man named Brian Piccolo, which i got to say Piccolo is not the most manly name for a football player, but he was also a star running back who was doing quite well. But rather than becoming enemies as they battled for position, they became best friends. In fact, they were the first teammates of different races to share a room when they were out playing road games, which caused quite a stir and hysteria amongst the media. And when Gail Sayers was injured, it was Piccolo who was there by his side, helping him rehab back in a day when trainers were rare. Their wives became great friends as well. But then a few years later, Brian Piccolo was cut down with cancer and began to spend more time in the hospital than he did on the football field. The two men had planned to go with their wives to New York to the Professional Football Writers Association Banquet, where Gail Sayers was going to be presented with the George Hallis Award as the most courageous professional football player at that year. But Piccolo, because of the oncoming advance of the disease, was unable to go. When the moment came for Gail Sayers to receive the award, this running back stepped to the microphone and with tears unashamedly running down his cheeks said, You flatter me by giving me this award, but I tell you here and now that I accept it for my friend Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive this award. I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd like you to love him too. After Piccolo's death and Sayers' retirement, their story was made into a TV movie special that wound up winning five primetime Emmys, and more importantly, inspired millions to work towards racial reconciliation. Sayers and Piccolo went ahead of the others, just as Peter went ahead of the others, but they brought others along with them. And we stand on their shoulders today, just as we stand on Peter's shoulders. So what are some of the key elements of this story that we need to remember? First, this story is bathed in prayer. Cornelius was praying. Peter was praying. God spoke to them both as they were praying and fasting. And in the same way, if we want to see God do what only God can do, we must ask, is our prayer life where we need it to be? Are we praying for God to do the amazing, the unordinary? Are we praying for God to ask people who seem unreachable? Are we bathing our neighborhoods in prayer? 
Are we bathing our workplaces in prayer and saying, God, I want you to do an amazing thing here. Do work in me and through me, but I already know you're working ahead of me and behind me. The second element of the story is that of hospitality. It sounds like a weird thing, doesn't it? Because oftentimes when we talk about different spiritual gifts, we don't think of hospitality as one that is super spiritual. We just think, well, they're nice people and they host people in their homes. But the reality is, is that hospitality in this story helped to break down the cultural barriers that were there so that the gospel could be spread. I don't want you to just think about inviting people into your home. I want you to think about breaking down cultural barriers that are standing in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know when we were in church planning, this was something that we had to do. We loved to do it, but literally three to four out of seven nights a week, we had different people in our house, and we loved it, and it broke down barriers. And now that we've been here living through COVID, I think that we've all missed hospitality, haven't we? We've all missed having people over. And as we start to move forward and whatever this post-COVID reality looks like, as we're still kind of in the middle of it at the same time, it's weird. But I'm telling you that people are longing for the hospitality of Christ that you can show through your hands and your feet. People need that hospitality. And that hospitality that Peter showed by inviting them into Simon the Tanner's house and that, that, that Cornelius showed towards Peter and that Peter did by breaking down those cultural barriers and going there is something that we need. How much better off would we be as a country if we didn't just get together with people who thought just like us, who voted just like us, who went to church in similar places that we did? How much better would we be if we sat down across the table with people who were different from us and listened to their story? One of the greatest ways that you can show hospitality is not just by cooking some great ribs out on the smoker, but also by choosing to listen to people. Ribs are important too, but I'm telling you, that listening to others' stories is vitally important. Will you hear their story? We are caught in this cultural moment where we think that we have to have a comeback for everything. What if our comeback was love? What if our comeback was love to what we heard? You don't always have to be right. You don't have to win arguments. What you, we are commanded to do in Scripture is to show the truth in love, to let everyone know that they are loved by God. Prayer and hospitality, hospitality, excuse me. The third thing is the willingness to follow the Holy Spirit. Peter was willing to go where the Spirit led him. We often talk about Peter's disobedience. The reality is, is Peter did something in this passage that no one else had done up to that moment in time. Where is it that the Spirit's leading you to reach out to someone who is viewed as, as unlovable or unreachable? Because God wants to use you and me and all of us together to reach people who are not like us. And finally, the fourth element of the story, this is common in missionary circles. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but this principle called the person of peace. In missionary circles, when you go out and you try to build a relationship in a community, when you try to reestablish yourself, one of the things you always pray for is a person of peace. You always pray for who is it that is that one figure that is well-connected in that community, that if I can build a relationship with that person, it's going to open the door for many others. For Peter, that person was Cornelius. I should say for God, because God chose Cornelius. Peter didn't. Peter just followed God's leading. Who has God chosen to be a person of peace and to some of the neighborhoods that we haven't reached? 
Who has God to be called to be a person of peace with our Somalian neighbors? Who has God called to be a, a person of peace with our Nepali neighbors that we have in our area, right around our church, and in other areas where you live? Who are those people of peace? Would you pray, God, show me that person of peace so that we can bring the gospel of Christ to those who he wants to reach, which is everyone. So we've got three conversions we've looked at today that Luke wanted us to see and experience in this story. Started with the conversion of Peter, where he recognized that all people can be saved through the blood of Jesus. And went to the conversion of Cornelius, where he and his family chose to follow Jesus. And went to the conversion of the early church, where the leaders recognized that God was doing something to save all people. But the fourth conversion that we need to consider in the story is our conversion. I don't just mean our conversion to follow Jesus Christ, but I mean our conversion just as Peter and the early church were converted to recognize that all people are created in the image of God. That all people deserve, because of what God has done, all people deserve His love. God desires that all people hear His message and see His love. Is there someone that you've written off? Is there someone that you have thought to be too far from God? A people group that you say they're unreachable? A people group that you see as the enemy instead of people who Christ died for? Is there a conversion that needs to take place in your heart today? Last week we had a small gathering, kind of a last minute gathering, uh, where we had several people in our church meet the Maxwells. And there were about 30 of us that were gathered out in the foyer out here, including about 10 kids who heard about the plight of street kids around the globe, many for the first time. After hearing Tyler and Amy share, give a presentation, at the end of the night I asked for three people to pray for the Maxwells and their work with the street kids around the world. And while adults usually hesitate to pray to volunteer, I don't know what it is about it, so I'm the same way. There was one young lady who didn't. And when I asked for someone to pray, immediately in the back of the room, I saw the hand of a little eight or nine year old girl named Lily raise her hand. She wanted to be the first to pray for the Maxwells and for their work with the street kids in Kenya. For kids who would be just like her in many ways, except they were born into a different situation on the other side of the world. And so as she came up and prayed very boldly for God's work among the Maxwells, I tried to hold back my tears the best that I could. I don't think it happened by accident. I think that Lily's prayer happened because her parents and her church have poured into her the love of Christ. That they've poured into her that God's love isn't just for a few, but that God's love is for everyone. And that she knows the value of prayer, maybe even more so than I do. Oftentimes we can be critical of the next generation or coming generations. But what I saw there is that the church had a big win. We have a little girl who's praying for people on the other side of the world. And I think, what if we could have that spread through our entire church? What if our children all knew the value of praying for our neighbors, our friends? If instead of hearing us as adults complain about people who were not like us, 
They heard us calling to prayer for those who are not like us. She knew the value of prayer, just as Peter and Cornelius did. God is going to be faithful to do his work. He will use everything, including dreams and visions, as he did in this story. He will do things that make me radically uncomfortable. The question I have to ask myself is, will I be faithful to start with prayer? Because that's where it all starts. People are loved unconditionally by God. And when I pray, I can be awakened to the work of God even in the places where I would least expect it. If God can invade the most powerful army in the world at its time and save Cornelius, if God can invade the most powerful army in our day, save our sister, where else is God wanting to invade through His Holy Spirit? Who else is He wanting to save? May we be faithful to pray because we know He will be faithful to do His work in us and through us and before us and behind us. Let's pray. Oh God, it's, a, it's an amazing story um, that we don't just want to be something caught back in Acts the 10th and 11th chapters, Lord. We want this story to, to be rewritten again and again. And you have been faithful to do that throughout history. We pray that you'd be faithful to do it again and that we would be faithful to see it done again in our context, in our culture, in our church, in our community. Because God, more than anything else, we want to see as many people come to Christ as possible. And we want to see our church transformed just as Peter was converted. May we be converted to know that all people are created in the image of God, that you died for everyone. And may we be willing to go and to sit in the homes of people who our culture calls unclean. Do a great work in us, God. Do not stop with us. Go behind us, go before us, go with us. May we have the courage simply to pray and then to follow wherever and to whoever you would lead us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.